Our Sessions, the podcast where three philosophers sit down at the end of a long conference day to chop it up at the hotel bar, which, as we all know, is where the real philosophy happens. All right, everybody, welcome back to Hotel Bar Sessions. I am Lee Johnson. I am joined by my two fabulous co-hosts, Dr. Charles Peterson and Dr. Rick Lee. What's up? Usu- <laughs> <laughs> Somebody's lit. So, like, as usual, we are going to start off with our drink orders and our rants and raves Rick Lee, what are you drinking today and what are you ranting and raving about? So I listened to this podcast called Proof and they had a whole episode on the liqueur chartreuse and it got me really interested. So I talked to Frangelica and she recommended that I drink a cocktail called Last Word. So it's Mm. gin, chartreuse, maraschino liqueur and lime juice. So I'm going to try it. I'll let you know how it is. I already love it. It's like sweet and drunken. (laughs) Just like you, Lee. My rave this week, and Charles will appreciate this, is The Porch. I know Charles raved before about Southern hospitality, but Charles was in town, and he and I sat on my porch almost all night long. And we had the greatest time you could imagine. So I love me some porch sitting with some friends in the summertime. And we don't have a lot of those days left this summer. So I'm raving about porches. And he's got a great porch. He's got several porches. He has porches to choose from. (laughs) (laughs) Of course he does. But it was a fantastic night. It was a classic night. Can't wait for the next one. Yeah, me too. My rant this week is the U.S. Supreme Court. Not just because of their decision not to stay the Texas anti-choice law, but their reasoning or lack thereof, which makes a flagrantly unconstitutional law stay in effect until they decide to come around and make a decision. So I am ranting once again about the fucking U.S. Supreme Court. Yeah, yeah. Here on I that. mean, they decided to just overturn Roe v. Wade. That's really what that's about. You know, I think they're waiting for this initial backlash to subside, and then they can give it an honest, clean death instead of this asphyxiation, this slow motion killing that they're engaging with now. It's, it's absolutely horrible. Absolutely yeah. horrible. Yeah. Well, speaking of absolutely horrible, what is your drink, Charles Peterson? (laughs) (laughs) And on the lighter side of things, I'll I'll be having a hemlock on the rocks. No, I'm just joking. (laughs) No, No, I will be having the Long Beach iced tea. It's it's the West wait, Coast wait, version. Wait, wait, no, no, no. Wait, wait, wait. Yeah, it's the, the long, the long, the long beach iced tea. It's legitimate. I used to be a bartender. It's legitimate. <laughs> is this different than the Long Island iced tea? <laughs> yes, it is. How are we defining different though? By degree? That's <laughs> <laughs> like, like having some difference. <laughs> no, there's different. Okay, as a former bartender, you know a lot of drinks are simply a slight variations on other drinks. Yeah, so I want to know, what's the difference between a Long Beach iced tea and a Long Island iced tea? Instead of Coca-Cola, it's cranberry juice. So it's basically all the liquors, which is what a Long Island iced tea is. Yeah, but then you can't complain about the difference between a Greyhound and a Salty Dog. It's the same drink, except the Salty Dog has salt around the rim. So that's Except legitimate. Except that the Long Island iced tea has like eight other liquors. No, no, it's all the same liquors except for 
except for the, the cranberry juice. So that's I my drink. You. I don't care what you're saying. So a few episodes ago, Charles introduced ranting about someone's rant. And now Lee preempts it. He, she's ranting about drink orders. Oh, my God. It's, it's gone too far. It's gone too far. <laughs> But it's okay. We're all friends here. I will stand by that Long Beach iced tea. I say drink and let drink. Drink and let drink. I like that. Drink and let drink. So that's my drink. My rant is ignorance in the face of the apocalypse. Whoa. I mean, we have a major hurricane that has a provably destructive effect across the eastern seaboard. We have flooding. We have infrastructure damage. We have city services overwhelmed, and yet there are still climate deniers. There are people who don't feel like that we should invest a lot of money into creating a 21st century infrastructure that will help us to survive and navigate the effects of climate change. I'm looking at you, Joe Manchin, who for Mm. some reason feels like it's okay to penny pinch the goddamn apocalypse. Joe Manchin, don't call us. Yeah, don't call us, Joe Manchin. So that's my rant. My rave is UGGS! Yes, baby. <laughs> the Tasman model of house shoe. It is the most pleasurable experience that a person could have who is not an overt foot fetishist. Sing it, brother. It is a comfortable shoe. It drops you in a warm vat of butter. Keep singing the truth, brother. And it whispers things so. That's my rave. Uggs. Tasman model of house shoe, the most amazing piece of footwear created since the sandal itself. I know that we have tried not to object to other people's rants and raves. However, I'm going to use my red card here to say (laughs) that I would really like to object to this rave about Uggs. Like, okay, listeners. Charles and Rick have been sending me pictures of their lower legs with their Uggs on for weeks because they know I hate Uggs. And they just keep sending them to me. And first of all, how many Uggs can a man own? We'll find out this Christmas. Do not ask either. We will find out this Christmas. I am so sick of Uggs. I hate them. I think they're awful shoes. But You are really not helping the attempt to reach out to Uggs for sponsorship. You're just pissing all over that. Thanks. Uggs, call us. Call Rick and Charles. Do not call me. I, on principle, object. Do you own a pair of Uggs? No, I do not own a pair of Uggs. So how are you engaging in a posteriori? I'm like 90% sure that they're called Uggs because they're the ugliest shoes ever. No, they, they are, but they're comfortable. That's I mean, come on now. That's the point. Not how a, a shoe looks, but how it feels. And Lee, I'm with you. When you're outside, it's better to look good than to feel good. But when you're inside, I think the opposite is the case. It's all about the okay, comfort. But here's, here's the thing. When you're inside, just keep y'all's inside inside and not take pictures of it and send it to me when I'm inside. It's not like we're posting it on the webpage. We're not making it an official part of Hotel Bar Sessions. This is a private, a personal sharing that we have with our you. Le- we're, we're letting our listeners into our interpersonal <laughs> dynamic. Into the inner world of Hotel Bar Sessions. Actually, this is the sequel. So we have Hotel Bar Sessions. Now it's going to be elevated to the room sessions. (laughs) 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 Please, somebody save me. (laughs) Listeners, this is a a desperate call for someone to save me. (laughs)
All right, so since nobody else is still like is ready for the rest of this, I'm gonna give you my rant. <laughs> what What are you drinking, Lee? First, that's right. What are you drinking? So, I mean, after this, I am drinking a whiskey straight up. I don't even care. Well, whiskey. It's fine. Oh. whatever. Oh. Like, it, whatever. Whatever oh. will get the image of Uggs out of my head. Oh. And, and like, Frangelica leave the bottle. Right, oh, leave the bottle. Yeah. Please, Frangelica, leave <laughs> I, the bottle. I need a whiskey in a plastic bottle. That's what I'm asking for. <laughs> yes. All right. So my rant this week is our overconfidence in medical doctors. So I think that there is a sense in which you can't question them, that Everything they say is true, and there's a kind of implicit trust that you ought to put in medical doctors. But I would just like to remind everyone that medical doctors are just normal human beings. I know I'm going to get in trouble for saying this, but medical doctors today are basically body mechanics. No, they are. Like yeah. They are more or less specialists in fixing one particular type of problem. And everything that is outside of their specialty, they address by prescribing drugs. Right. So as everyone who's been listening to this podcast series this season knows, I've been going through several or at least two eye operations. And one of them has gone terribly bad. I knew the day that it happened that everything went wrong. But, you know, there comes a point, everybody out there, where you've got to trust your own sense of your own body and either talk to someone else or talk to a lawyer. Right? Yeah. Like, <laughs> because the, the truth is, is that they're just like anybody else. They're just like plumbers. They're just like mechanics. They're just oh, yeah. like... Teachers are like anybody else. There are good ones and bad ones. Yeah, I agree with you. I think it's a brilliant way you framed it. They're body mechanics. No insult to them because it's a level of knowledge and memorization and technique I I don't possess. Actual car mechanics know a lot more than I do. Oh, yeah. But they know a very specific set of things about a very specific set of skills. Anyway, that's my rant for this week. My rave, despite you guys... Terrible, terrible, terrible taste in shoes. My <laughs> rave this week is actually both of my co-hosts. So we are recording episode 28 today, which means that we are two episodes away from the end of season two of Hotel Bar Sessions. I just want to say to both of you that I am so happy that you guys signed on to do this with me this season. I have had such a great time. You have been absolutely fabulous co-hosts. And I just want to take this moment because we are three episodes from the end of season two to officially extend to both of you an invitation to stay on for season three. This is going to be really awkward, you guys, if they say no. But I would like to extend both of you an opportunity to stay on for season three. I would love to do season three with you. So what do you say, guys? That's a fantastic piece of manipulation, but you don't know who you're fucking with. I'll say no in a minute. That is my existential position of being able to say no. But... I will say yes, because this does not feel like work, and that's what I'm looking for in this life. Now, of course, I just made it really difficult for Rick. (laughs) (laughs) I I think I'm busy that day. (laughs) (laughs) 
No, Lee, I, I feel exactly the same way as you just so nicely expressed, and I'm happy to do it. So it does not feel like work for me either. And so, yeah, I'm in. Let's keep building this empire. Yay! <laughs> Thank you for inviting us to come back. Yeah. I'm so glad you guys. I just think that hotel bar sessions would not be the same without you. I'm so glad to have you back for next season. But I do think we should think about a shorter episodic endeavor. Hotel to the Room podcast. <laughs> don't, don't get, don't start again. <laughs> I, I might lose it again. <laughs> and, that's, and that's where you're really drunk because you've just spent three hours at the bar drinking and arguing. But there's that final bit you need to get out through the haze of the bourbon in the plastic bottle. <laughs> okay, so I'm going to just leave an exit clause in my offer. <laughs> like, it, can, it can be rescinded at any point. Okay, okay, okay. But let's move on to today's episode. So Rick is in the hot seat today. So Rick, what are we talking about today? So today we're going to talk about generations. I think several times on the podcast this season, one of us, I think Lee is the guiltiest of this, will refer to, well, Gen Z this and millennials that and so on. And I just wanted to talk about generations and whether they make sense as an organizational category. Before we get started, like I... I looked up and almost every source I could find basically agrees that you have, before baby boomers, you have what they call the silent generation. And so that's, my mother is in that generation. Isn't that the greatest, the yeah, greatest yeah, generation? Yeah, that's, that, that, that's, yeah, that's the greatest generation, isn't it? Yeah, but uh, see, the problem with the greatest generation is that not all of them served. And so, oh, right. and also my mother was six years old when World War II was declared, so... So let's call it the greatest generation. I think what we're going to spend most of our time talking about is the rest of this. Are the people who are actually alive. (laughs) (laughs) I'll make sure that my dad hears this one because he's a part of that generation. Whoops, sorry. (laughs) Yeah, and my mom is too, and she's still alive. So then most sources I could find agree that boomers are 1946, so people coming back from war. Not the, The war hasn't ended yet, but... Coming back from the war to 1964. Gen X, 1965 to 1980. Millennials, 1981 to 1996. And Gen Z, 1997 to 20. Now, here's a question I will start out with. According to this, two of my sisters are baby boomers. And my brother, myself, and my younger sister are all Gen Xers. And, and yet, I think we feel like we're in the same generation. So I'm just wondering, like, of course, the numbers get fuzzy, probably near the edges. But are any of these actually doing descriptive work? And I'm actually not convinced that they are. <laughs> We've had this conversation before, Rick, that you think that generational tags are mostly meaningless. But I really want to disagree with that because I think that it can't possibly be the case that a generation grows up with the same set of experiences and can't subsequently be characterized in many ways as a group. I mean, all of these stereotypical projections about millennials 
are really reflections of a particular sort of response to previous or larger currents. So, you know, oh, they stay with their parents. Well, I mean, we're looking at dramatically challenging housing market, employment market. They are not in the position that maybe my parents or Rick's parents were or your parents were in to where they could get a job 18 to 21 years old without going to college and they could have a career or at least a job that for 30 years afforded them a certain level of economic security. My dad graduated from high school, which is a huge thing for my family. My grandparents came out of the cotton South, never had more than a fourth grade education. So my father having a high school diploma was a huge thing, was able to work for the government for 37 years, sent both of his sons to college, bought houses, new cars, a fully-fledged middle-class person. Those economic possibilities are gone for millennials, right? So I, I think we have to take very seriously the fact that they're living in a dramatically different economic possibility than even 30 years before. If we're thinking about how to think about generational divides or generational partitions, and I certainly think a lot of this is corporate marketing. This is Madison Avenue, if that still exists, saying this is how we can sell certain products to certain groups of consumers. Yes, but there has to be something said about the larger social, cultural, economic conditions a particular group of people exist in. And we can talk about generations existing prior to, hey, these are the greatest generation or the silent generation. These are boomers. These are Generation X. Because what do you say to the generation of Europeans in 1848? who had certain expectations about liberal democracy. What do you say about the generation of the late 18th century who witnessed the French Revolution, the American Revolution, the Haitian Revolution? So we have to think about generational identity as not just a marketing tool, which it is, but we also have to think about it as a very materialist existence in which people are engaged and subject to and perceiving of defining moments within their lives at a certain historical moment. What is interesting about millennials that did not exist for, for example, Gen X and boomers before them is that we didn't have a medium. You know, we had television, we had radio, but we didn't have a medium that could so immediately deliver packaged advertising messages about what generations were. One of the things that I often hear from millennials, including my partner, is, but that's not really us. Like people say this about millennials, but it's not really true of all of us. And of course, no characterization of a generation is going to be true of everyone. But I think that the thing that millennials have to deal with that Gen X didn't have to deal with and no generation before millennials really had to deal with right. is the immediate packaged representation of them to them. So I am Gen X. I think that one of the things that is characteristic of Gen X now, now that we have gotten so invested as a culture in these generational distinctions, one of the characteristics of Gen X is to distinguish ourselves from Z, Y, and Boomer using these caricatures of those generations. I think that Gen X is very good at doing that because we were the generation that basically straddled the digital divide, right? right? Like we more or less grew up right. in a world without the internet. And depending on where you are in Gen X, you came online either in high school or college. 
And so we're the generation that understands the pre-internet and the post-internet generation. And so it's very easy for us to be like, oh, look at millennials and Gen Z and wag our fingers at them or whatever. So a lot of this has to do with, again, not just random assignments of characteristics to generations, but exactly as Charles said, actual things that happen in these generations' experiences that you define them. Probably for me, the greatest example of that is the ability to say, do you remember where you were when JFK was assassinated? Or do you remember what you were doing when you heard about Pearl Harbor's attack? That's so interesting because to me, it seems like... 9-11. Yeah, 9-11, right? Like when I'm talking with people who are actually alive, do yeah. you remember where you were when 9-11 happened? And I remember just as a professor, yeah, you know, ha- having this real come to Jesus moment <clears throat> when I realized that my freshmen were not even alive when 9-11 happened. I pulled that out to show that this generational consciousness precedes the marketing of, you know, Gen X or Gen Alpha. That's the new thing for post-2012 kids being born. But there are very real moments in which material conditions and political conditions and economic conditions change. And the ways in which people existed prior to that moment are now very different. So if you're like 40 years old in 1941 on December 6th, the people who were sentient and cognizant on December 8th, 1941, are now in a very different world from you. I, I suppose I'm not opposed to a notion that a generation could be defined on the basis of a set of shared experiences writ large. So economic experiences, political experiences, cultural experiences, and so on. For example... I remember where I was when I found out Elvis died. My sister, though, who is also a younger sister, who is also a Gen Xer, was barely conscious at that time. And I think like Elvis dying was, I would say, for a number of people, a really momentous occasion. And yet she's in my generation and she didn't have it. So that's point one. Like, But you would have been six when Elvis died, right? He died in the older. 72? No, 77. Yeah. I was... Elvis died in 77. 77, yeah. Then I was 11. Okay, so yeah. Okay. All right, sorry. And she was six. I was, by the way, I was in Sport Mart, and we were at the checkout. I was buying new gym shoes, and my mom was buying them for me. And the woman at the checkout said, oh my God, I just heard Elvis died. And my mom was like, yeah, whatever, um, because the 60s for my mom was just like one baby after another. And she's like, Elvis? Oh, I, I think I heard of him. Say one of mine. <laughs> right. Right. Uh, yeah. But OK, so in a sense, there's a way you could define a generation in terms of those kinds of experiences. I get then increasingly worried that we can then move somehow causally from those experiences to characteristics that, by and large, this group of people share. See, that's an interesting point of disagreement, I think, between you and I, Rick, is that I don't find that a leap at all. Lee, I I just want to be clear. I wasn't saying it's a leap, but I just want us to mark the fact that There's a kind of causal determination here that I think in other 
similar or related areas all three of us would be uncomfortable with. Yeah, I mean, maybe it would help me if you could say what you think are similar areas. Right. Because I don't know of other ways of characterizing whole groups of humanity better than their shared experiences. So in the past, I mentioned the work of Sally Haslanger. And what I'm wondering is, is a generation a natural kind? Is it a gerrymandered kind? I mean, what exactly is it? Yeah, so that's actually very helpful. And I think that in this case, I want to say that generational designations, obviously, as kinds, they require rough cuts that are imperfect and that leave out some nuances and details. But I do think that I'm not myself convinced that there's a better way to describe whole groups of humankind. So better than their sexual reproductive capacities or their skin color or their economic, you know, advantages and disadvantages. I think there's no other better way to describe whole segments of humanity other than their shared experiences. And I think that... I, I, I would much rather be a Gen Xer than an N-word. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's to support Lee's point, I'm much more on board with that, to be honest. But even putting aside the political valence of the N-word, you would much rather be described as a Gen Xer than an African-American or even a black person. No, I don't mind those. It's the N-word that I, I, I take issue with. No, no, I get it. But like as a more complete description of you, right? I, would you agree that it would be a more complete description of you to describe you as a Gen Xer than to, this is a genuine question. Would it be a more complete description of you to describe you as a Gen X than to describe you as an African-American? That is a very good question. I'm not going to take the easy route by giving you a, a snap response to that question because it's inseparable because I can certainly talk about the ways in which my experience and my existence as an African descendant man in the United States, how that influences the larger generational events to which I was born. But at the same time, I still connect to those larger generational events. So maybe my relationship to Elvis is not Rick's relationship to Elvis, but Elvis was within my purview. I grew up watching on WGN on Saturday afternoons, those terrible Elvis movies. Yeah. Where yeah I grew yeah. up hearing how Elvis was like the king of rock and roll before anyone really began to tell me about Chuck Berry or Little Richard. So Elvis is within my perception. But at the same time, because of my ethnic, racial, cultural, political, economic, historical being, I have a particular relationship to Elvis that may not be Rick's relationship to Elvis. So yeah, so being a Gen Xer may be as equally encompassing as being an African-American is as encompassing to my existence. And this is a really good question. Thank you. Hey, we couldn't hear you while you were shouting into your headphones. So if you have feedback or suggestions for future topics, or if you just want to pick a fight with one of our co-hosts, or in fact all of us, just visit us at www.hotelbarpodcast.com 
and click on the interactive page. We're there often to solicit listeners' feedback on past episodes and contributions for upcoming episodes. If you want to belly up to the bar with us, at least virtually, you can always email the audio clip, keep it under two minutes please, to hotelbarpodcast at gmail.com. If it's interesting, we're going to steal it from you. If it's not, we'll send you our Venmo handles and you can virtually buy us a drink. Let me ask you this question. Do you think that it would be more descriptive of you to describe you as an African-American Gen Xer than to describe you as an African-American? No. Oh, I 100% think it would. Like, no, 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 and this, no, but this is why. Because no, no, this is why. Charles, your experience is wrong, Leah's saying. I, no, no, but like, can I, can, I, can I actually say this? Though? Because say your point I, I, and like, then I'll make my response. Yeah, yeah, because I think that when I describe someone as an African-American Gen Xer, I am describing someone who has experienced, for example, Michael Brown, Philando Castile, Tamir Rice, someone whose experience as an African-American has been informed, if not defined, by the experiences of race and police violence and race and the justice system in the 80s, 90s, 2000s, and 2010s. And I think that that is a completely different experience than to say, I'm an African-American and I am a boomer, or I'm an African-American. And, you know, I mean, I, I don't want to tell you what your experience is, but I find it hard to believe that you don't think that it makes a difference to say, I'm an African-American from age 85 to age two, and I'm a Gen X African-American, that you don't think that the Gen X is a value-added descriptor. No, it, it's certainly a distinct element and, and experience, but for every Philando Castile or for every Tamir Rice, you know, there's an Emmett Till. That you're right, there are distinctive points within my particular historical timeline for an African-American of the age of really, God, maybe like 47 to 48 and up, and I'm 50, the L.A. uprising of 1992 is definitive. Mm. And, and just like I mentioned earlier, the example of if you say to somebody, where were you when Kennedy was shot? Where were you when you heard about Pearl Arbor? Where were you when you heard about the Rodney King verdict? So it, it seems to me that Charles and Lee, you're actually really agreeing with each other. But I have to say, Lee, when you first gave the examples I thought, and, and I think I'm the oldest among the three of us, I thought that those examples were too late to be Gen X examples. And I think Charles was pointing out that there are other examples that for someone in the African-American community who is a Gen Xer are already definitive so that the Philando Castile, the Tamir Rice are already being informed by Emmett Till and the Rodney King verdict. I mean, and I think what I was trying to say is that, for a lack of a better way to describe it, there is an eternal return for these wow. these generational moments within Black life. 
So meeting with my students after the Tamir Rice shooting, meeting with my students after the, the Trayvon Martin shooting, I made reference to what happened with Rodney King. Though Rodney King was not killed, right? But that yeah. same sort of very public display of state or white violence against a black body. That is unaccountable. Yeah. That's the thing. It's unaccountable. But then when I remember when I was 21 years old and the Rodney King verdict came down, I remember seeing on CNN, Jesse Jackson made reference to Emmett Till. Wow. So when I say, how do we define the question of generation among African-Americans along the lines of sort of the boomer generation, the millennials, Gen X? Yeah, that's there because we're still a part of this larger historical moment within U.S. social, political, economic movement. But at the same time, there is such a tragic commonality and there's a tragic recurrence of certain types of events that are always there that each generation has their example they're particular of a larger generic sort of movement. So Emmett Till, Scottsboro Boys, Sam Hose. I mean, right? It goes on John Brown, if you want to embrace him. So when you ask me, what is a much more definitive identity? Is it being an African-American or is it being a Gen X? Then they're so intertwined, but at the end of the day, because I have common experiences with my father, or at least common examples of certain ongoing experiences that my father has, and my father's 91, I'm 50, because there is a, a through line of a certain relationship that black people have to the U.S. society, mainstream society, that may actually outweigh the idea of specific generational experiences. So I think that's what I was trying to say, Lee. Hey listeners, before we have too many drinks and it slips my mind, if you can't catch us at the Hotel Bar, you can catch us on Twitter at Hotel Bar Podcast. You can also follow our HBS hosts individually on Twitter to catch their all-fair thoughts. You can follow Charles at at C underscore F Peterson, and Peterson is with an O, not an E. O, not an E. Rick is at, at Rick Lee Philos. That's Rick Lee with two E's and Philos spelled like half of the word philosophy. And Lee is at Dr. Lee M. Johnson. The doctor's abbreviated and Lee spelled L-E-I-G-H. In the off chance that you weren't furiously scribbling notes just in, you can also visit our website at www.hotelbarpodcast.com and find everything you need to know there. Now, back to our conversation. So just picking up on what Charles noted rightly in the earlier segment, which is that there are, of course, connections between the experiences of different generations and ways in which, of course, history repeats itself with a difference all the time, generation after generation. So frequently people will say the boomers, Emmett Till is the Gen X's, Rodney King is the Gen Y's, Michael Brown is the Gen Z's, Tamir Rice. 
you know, we also say Normandy is Vietnam, is Afghanistan, is, you know, et cetera, et cetera. The Bastille. Yeah, right, right. So I think that obviously we have to recognize that when we're talking about generational markers, we're making very rough cuts into very detailed, nuanced, complicated historical moments. Nevertheless, I do want to be the one that defends the informational or at least descriptive value of these rough cuts. Because in my experience, there are things that define my experience and my point of view on the world and my economic opportunities and my interpersonal relationships and my involvement with all kinds of things, medicine, technology, the law, that are entirely defined by events of my generation. I was born in 1973. I was born in Roe v. Wade year. Let me just tell listeners that we're recording this in the week that might be the very beginning of the overturning of Roe v. Wade. So in the week that the Supreme Court has upheld this really draconian law in Texas. I think that what defines my generation, I'm a little too young to have been defined by the AIDS crisis, but the AIDS crisis was definitely part of my development as a sexual human being. Oh, sure. I'm a queer person, but I am too young. I am younger than the queer liberation movement. So I had a totally awful experience you know, I, I grew up in a time where you could not say that you were gay. It was like literally dangerous. So, I, you know, I'm Matthew Shepard's age or a little bit, you know, yeah. like within a few years of Matthew Shepard's age. I was more or less a young person in the cushy consumerist Clinton years. And it was only when I was just coming into adulthood. So at the beginning of the 90s that I saw, for example, the fall of apartheid, the real acknowledgement of what was going on with the post-Cold War hot war that was happening in Central and South America. I saw the AIDS crisis. I saw the third wave women's liberation movement. So, I mean, I think that these are things that 100% distinguish me from my mother and from my students. And I think that that's the cash out of generational gross characterizations is does it give you a place to distinguish yourself from your parents' generation? And I don't have children. So in my case, from my students' generation. So can I just go back for a second and point out that the designation of baby boomers is based on the fact that like their parents just fucking got busy with it, right? <laughs> so, and then after that, Gen X, the name X comes up because you're not boomers. And so we don't know what you are, but you're not boomers. And so you're Gen X. So that's one point I want to make about maybe the gerrymandered ground of these generations. But Lee, you pointed to a number of really formative experiences for you and your Gen X also that I was already an adult 
And you didn't right, mention right. formative experiences that were formative for me. Because, for example, one of my professors, Reiner Schurman, died of AIDS. When I went to grad school in New York, the gay community was, I mean, Angels of America seems like the truth of what the gay male community was experiencing in New York at the time. Can I just say this just briefly, though, that I, I think that in any generation, which we can presume is going to cover 10, 20, in some cases, 30 years, that there are going to be differences in the kind of greatest hits of that, you know, the highlights of that the, generation. The, the, the inflection points. Yeah, the inflection points. But I would not say, as a description of my generation or myself, that the AIDS crisis was not definitive of my dinner generation. Sure. Even though I was probably 9, 10, 11, 12, when that really became definitive. I would also, by the way, not say that 9-11 was not also definitive of my generation, despite the fact that that is the very end sure. of what gets defined sure. of my generation. You know, so I, I want to just stipulate that all generational definitions are, as you say, gerrymandered groups. But I think whether they're gerrymandered groups is a separate question from whether they are valuable, descriptive, useful groups. I think there are three points I want to make, and I don't know where we go with them. I think one of the first points I want to make is that this question of generational self-awareness, and that's what we're talking about. Generational self-awareness does not occur until there becomes a distinctive moment, negative or positive, right? Because we talk about, oh, where were you when Kennedy was assassinated? Also, a uh, parallel to that question is, were you there when the Beatles first performed on Ed, Su you know, Ed Sullivan? Yeah. Right? So I think we've fallen into the trap of thinking about generational awareness or self-awareness in really morbid or, or, or negative ways. So I will say that. That's there. The other point I would like to make is that what we're not talking about at all is how cultural movements are also as important to the defining of a generation as economic, political, historical events. Because, you know, you've got this whole thing of, where man, were you at Woodstock? Right, right. That is as much of a defining of a generation as to whether or not you were there when, you know, were you participating in the Mississippi summers with Bob Moses? I, I might want to disagree with you there because I don't think that isn't exactly the way that we've been talking about generational distinctions so far is that a self-awareness of events that were important in that generation's awareness of itself. So, so yeah, maybe for the humors yeah. that was Woodstock, maybe for Gen X, that was Matthew Shepard's sure. murder. Maybe for Gen X, that was the end of apartheid. Maybe for Gen X, that was the falling of the Berlin Wall. Maybe for Gen X, that was September 11th, right? Maybe I'm misunderstanding what Rick is meaning by gerrymandered set. But what I'm trying to say is, I don't think that these are necessarily outwardly imposed definitions on a generation. I think that for the most part, generations are capable of defining themselves and everyone else around that generation 
recognizes that generation as they define themselves. And I think that in particular, this has been true of the difference between Y and Z. I think that for most Gen Xs left to their own devices, they would not make a distinction between Y and Z. No, I, I agree with you. And I think that, yes, generations define themselves. It's not simply the corporatized acknowledgement and consumer parasitism that I referenced earlier. So generations tell you, I am this generation versus that generation, whether it be a preceding generation or a subsequent generation, because of X, Y, and Z. Right? I am not the generation of the Civil War because we're the lost generation. We're World War One, and we're jazz, and we're like modernist literature. Right? We're greatest generation because we're not the lost generation, but we are the generation of the Depression and the Dust Bowl and the migration. So I agree with you completely. This this whole idea of how do historical pockets and communities understand themselves as being separate and distinct from their predecessors and their successors is all about how they decide to be distinct from their predecessors and their successors. I think for the first time in the history of this season, I will say I could not disagree more with (laughs) this. I think that no generation defines itself as a generation. Let me separate that from people of a certain age can define themselves, but they never define themselves as a generation. And I know this because they are already called a generation before they are even pooping in a toilet. Millennials were called millennials by Gen Xers. Gen Xers were called Gen Xers by baby boomers. And I think it's the previous generation always saying, get off my lawn. In my day, we walked uphill both ways to school. And so I think that most of the time when I hear this talk about generations, I'm hearing generations dragged through the mud. Now, let me just make one more point. I think Charles earlier and Lee in a different way was talking about, let me take a step back because I heard Charles earlier reference something he mentioned several episodes ago. Charles said that no one knows white consciousness more than black people. And I think Charles was indicating that earlier in this hesitation about, am I Gen X? Uh, Where do I belong? In that kind of, you know, we could call it double consciousness, or there are other within African and diasporic thought, there are lots of ways to talk about this. But yes, there is a way in which We all are participating in the majority culture, even if it's not the culture in which we feel most at home. So I I think Charles was referencing an earlier point. By earlier, I mean like four episodes ago or five in his response. But then Lee, in your response, I, I think you got to the same point. And that is, as an African American... As a a queer person, there are generations that don't map so neatly onto 
the generations, Gen X, uh, millennials, Gen Z, and so on. And I think Charles pointed this out when he talked about Stonewall. So that's 69. I'm three years old during Stonewall. I'm certainly not at three defining myself in terms of that. But I can't say that it didn't have an impact on my consciousness. And so I, I, I just feel like generations are not self-defined. So I want to trouble that because I think to the extent we think they are self-defined, we're going to get into trouble. That's my first point. And my second point is that generations might be as intersectional as all of us are. I think, and this is not being a moderate, this is not me trying to split the difference. I think there's certainly moments where generations get defined by the previous generation, without a doubt. But I also think that there are moments where generations, or at least generational representatives, or people who assert themselves as generational representatives do create and sort of are able to understand what are the distinctions between my cohort and my parental cohort or institutional cohort. And, you know, going back to Kennedy, because I, I really think this idea of generations really sticks into our consciousness, at least from the sort of mainstream perspective, through the Kennedy years, Kennedy's inaugural address is a generational defining speech. When he says, this generation, and A, it's a generation that is not one, right? Nobody of his leadership class fought in World War I. They made, you know, to quote the Godfather, and I still think we should probably have a whole episode on the Godfather, they made their bones during World War II. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Have we not had three straight episodes <laughs> of The Godfather? I mean, but seriously, if you look at maybe, ooh, easily six presidents, you have Kennedy, you have Nixon, you have Carter, you have Reagan, you have Bush one. These are all World War II veterans, right? But Kennedy was able to articulate and create a self-awareness of a generational divide and, and new direction based on the fact that we are a generation of Americans who take for granted American hegemony mm. Mm. in ways that FDR did not, mm. in ways that, you know, Teddy Roosevelt did not. And even Eisenhower, who's older, was brought into a new generational understanding mm. of the role of America on the geopolitical mm. stage. So, mm. no, I agree. I, th I think... Generations can be defined by others, but generations also have moments where they say, this is who we are. If you don't mind, if I could just bring this back to the 21st century. I do actually want to float a possibility that I think you might both at least be open to, which is that I completely agree with Rick's proposition that generational markers are gerrymandered groups, 100%. I also completely agree with Charles' proposition that the markers of these groups are often historical markers that are overdefined, overemphasized by a kind of white nationalist history. Here's where I think that we really need to think about what we're 
saying here is that Gen Z is decidedly different. So Gen Z is the first generation, for example, that has had at their disposal all the previous generations, gerrymandered generations of their generations and other generations. So they've had it as source material. And I honestly think that millennials are the first generation to be self-aware of themselves as a generation. I really do. Uh, and and I think that that has a lot to do with their being the generation that is the post 9-11 generation. Like, I just feel like there was this not just generational shift, but actual historical shift in the national identity towards thinking about oneself as historically defined. So I think that late Gen Xers, early millennials, have already slotted themselves into that space. I think that what we see in Gen Z, and 100% because of the internet, but also because of what we've just been saying, that they're already fed with the narrative of gerrymandered generations as defined, have the first opportunity that none of us had to define themselves as a generation, to say, this is what we are. And I think that what is actually both definitive and amazing, you know, about Gen Z is that everything that they do is about undermining the possibility of defining them as a generation. Mm. What they do is like, you know, I mean, I'm sure you've seen this just to go back to your rant earlier about the Texas abortion law. TikTokers are like, um, here's what we're going to do. We're going to flood right. the the Texas whatever reporting law. The snitch website. The snitch website, yeah. right, with fake reports. This has happened over and over and over with Gen Z. Gen Z has been like, this is how we define ourselves. We define ourselves as the ones who are effing up the system. That is how we define ourselves. So, yes, maybe you could say to me, a Gen Xer, oh, that's how you're defining Gen Z. But I think that I really want to give the autonomy here to Gen Z, that Gen Z is maybe the first generation in all of human history that it has come to consciousness of itself with a sense of every other generation before us defined already as a generation. And so it's like, okay, now this is our job. We're going to define ourselves as a generation. I feel like all of the rest of us just fell into a generation because of wars or tragedies or whatever. But Gen Z is like, oh, this is how you guys do it, you humans. Like, you know, oh, we're on the internet. Yeah, we'll do this too. And we'll define ourselves this way. And so maybe it is the case that maybe this is the first generation that's not a gerrymandered generation in the way that... So in this, I think I agree. If I'm a Gen Xer, I'm not the one who was antagonistic to baby boomers. But let me be clear, what we're talking about in terms of generation is not the struggle of children to separate from their parents, 
right? So, like, that always happens. Even when I look at the generations within Gen X, you could have someone born in Gen X come to maturity and give birth to a baby who was also born in Gen X, which is weird to me. <laughs> but okay. Then I, when Lee was making her point, I suddenly realized Gen X didn't come up with the meme, okay, boomer. It wasn't even millennials. It was Gen Z. And right. I think Lee is right that the moment that Gen Zers are saying, okay, boomer, is the moment where they're saying, we didn't invent this generational game, but you know what? If you're going to play it, we're going to own it and we're going to own you. We're going to win it. We're going we're gonna <laughs> to yeah. own our generation and we're going to own you. I think that we really do have to reckon with the fact that what we're talking about in terms of definitional generational markers is compressing really quickly with time. And Gen Z, I think, is the first generation that is a self-defining generation. And I'm not sure that they're going to easily stomach the defining of subsequent generations in the way that all of us have. What has to be considered for this generation is a very real understanding of the end of civilization. Mm. Right, 100%. And yeah. an accountability for that. There is something to be said about when you look at your economic, your social, your climactic, and your environmental circumstance, and you understand the limits on your ability to enjoy a fully articulated life, that you know that this particular generation and the previous generations were so responsible for the limits on your existence then that, that is so clarifying. When you are faced with the fact that, holy shit, all the things that we saw our grandparents have and our, and our parents have, that that's gone for us. There's no guarantee. Then I think that sort of also wets the blade of who you understand yourself to be versus who previous populations of human beings are. Two things we haven't talked about up until now, and... What each of you has been saying reminded me of both of these in different ways. One is, I would say that if I am a Gen Xer, and I, I think I certainly am, one of the things that defines our generation, I would argue, is that right before us, there was a certain excitement toward the acquisition of nuclear weapons. And we all lived in an era in which we were living under the threat of the destruction of the planet by nuclear weapons. So this goes back to what Charles was just saying, that I, I feel like our threat was the threat of global thermonuclear war, as they say in war games. The other thing I wonder is if the concept of a generation made much more sense when life expectancies were shorter. So that I would live only maybe 10 or 15 years into my parents. You know, I, I would be an adult and overlap with them as an adult, maybe 10 years at most. 
And now that, for example, my mother has great-grandchildren, I wonder, does that make the notion of generation less exact and maybe less defining? And I think that though you do have this overlap because of an improved healthcare system, right? I mean, the boomers have Medicare, you know what I'm saying? And no one before them had it and- They just won't die. So, you know, and you've got an improved sort of like diet and- Right. So all these things that which have extended human life, which I think allows for the overlap of multiple generations. But also, can I just say, like, the extension of boomer lives has been a real burden on Gen X lives, right? I don't think that any generation before Gen X has had the financial, psychological, and emotional burden of elder caretaking like Gen X has. I mean, Gen X is holding this shit together. And Gen X is holding it together because they're scared shitless, right? Because they can't lose their jobs. They can't lose their pensions. They can't- if, 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 if Gen X loses, everybody else falls. I feel like the fact that life expectancy has been from probably a certain socioeconomic and racial segment of the greatest generation through boomers into Gen X, life expectancy has been extended. We are like one big dysfunctional family. And in a dysfunctional family, there is usually a child who didn't choose it, but looks around and is like, someone's got to keep this shit together because otherwise we're going to hell. And Gen X is that child. It is the middle, the child, middle child, child of American society. It really is. <laughs> yeah. And y'all, we're keeping your all shit together. Say thank you. You're welcome. We're sending you to college and we're providing for you to have a really nice nursing home experience. Or we're maintaining the structures of your oppression. That's, that's too. You decide. Well, that too. Like and you're welcome for oh that God. too. <laughs> oh my God. All right, you guys, this has been a great conversation, and I'm not even sure that we came to a a kind of consensus on this, but this is what I love about you guys, is that we can constructively disagree about things. So, unfortunately, Frangelica is making her last call right now so we have got to get out of here and charles you're gonna be in the hot seat next week so you want to tell us what we're talking about next week i think that in the midst of the transformation of the modern academy where we see a move toward and rick shout out to you but a particular sort of corporatist or vocational specialization i think that we have to have a full-throated defense of the humanities. And that means, you know, what are the possibilities? What does it mean for human beings to have the broadest amount of knowledge of the various disciplines and areas of human endeavor? Does it have an effect upon our career possibilities? Does it have an effect upon our ability to think about ourselves in a larger world? Does it have an effect upon our ability to self-develop and develop and grow? No one is having that conversation, and I think we need to understand what makes us human 
in the fullest possible way. As with the humanity, so with the Uggs, the man sings the truth. Okay, <laughs> listeners. You know, if these jokers want to defend both the Uggs and the humanities, I'm on board as long as they defend the effing humanities. Humanities, call us. Big humanities, call us. <laughs> Charles, I'm just so excited about talking about a defense of the humanities next week. I hope that you have a fully uh, developed defense of the humanities next week. Okay. <laughs> no, no, I do. I'm bringing the pain. I'm bringing the pain. I'm dropping the hammer. Right. Say goodnight, Rick. Goodnight, Rick. Goodnight, Rick. See y'all next week. All right. Take care, everybody. Thank <laughs> you.